If you would, turn with me to the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 9. And going verse by verse through this book and reached the heart of it a couple weeks ago. So, continuing in chapter 9 today. I want you to think for a minute. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? And I'm speaking in terms of spiritually. Maybe you went to a camp or a conference or something. And maybe you made a decision for Christ. Maybe it's when you got saved. Or maybe you rededicated your life. Maybe you um, repented of some sin. But it was a memorable experience for you spiritually. If that, if that is something you can relate to, then from there you realize that that's a high point and you weren't going to be able to live there. You can't stay on the mountain. You have to come back into the valley for most of life. You with me? Last week we studied the transfiguration in which three of Jesus' disciples went up on the mountain with him and they got to see him, got a glimpse of his glory. He glowed. It was, had to have been an amazing thing to see. And what they were getting was a glimpse of what he will look like when he appears at his second coming. And I think Peter especially seems like he wanted to camp out there a while. But that wasn't God's will. Because where was Jesus going? He, when he spoke with Moses and Elijah, he spoke with them about his exodus, his upcoming sacrifice, his upcoming death and resurrection. So when that time came to an end, and, and you, you remember, either you know the story or you were here and we studied it, and the cloud came over and out of the cloud, the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And after that, all they saw was Jesus. Moses and Elijah were gone. And they came down the mountainside and they had a little bit of a conversation on the way. But they got down there to the, the foot of the hill. They got down to the valley, if you will, coming off that amazing experience. And what did they come upon? A mess. In some ways, in my own mind, there are some parallels here. When Moses was up on the Mount, Mount Sinai receiving the law, he came down, and there's Aaron and the children of Israel, and they, they are involved in all sorts of moral failure. Well, that's not the case here. But Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they see a mess there because there is spiritual failure going on. The spiritual failure that is going on is in the form of unbelief. Who's unbelief? Well, honestly, just about everybody there. But particularly, we're concerned about Jesus' disciples. Nine of them had stayed there. And there is spiritual unbelief going on. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus said so. I'm going to read our passage in just a minute, but in verse 19, he described them as faithless, a faithless generation. And by the time we get to verse 29 at the end of our passage, we're going to see that Jesus is calling them prayerless. They're faithless and prayerless. If you would stand, please, hopefully you've had a chance to find the passage, and I'm going to read for us. This is Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read to verse 29. So you follow along, please, as I read. And when he came to the disciples, that's Jesus, of course, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one from the multitude answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. And wherever he seizes him, he throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out. But they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And, became, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we've already said this morning, without you, we can do nothing. But we read here that with you, all things are possible. So Lord, give us understanding this morning. This is your holy word. This is your living word. It is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can pierce into the innermost parts of us and expose what's there. And Lord, although that is painful at times, I ask that's what you would do today. We also know that your word will not return void. It will accomplish what you send it to do. And that's what we're asking for this morning, Lord. That according to your plan and your purposes and your will and your timing, that your word would have an effect on us today. That we would have ears to hear. And Lord, we confess that we need help for that. There are distractions around us. There's plenty going on in the world around us that would steal our thoughts away. And so we ask you to help us focus our thoughts on you and on your word for these moments together. Lord, I ask for your help, that your Holy Spirit would anoint me to preach your word this morning, that your words would come through loud and clear, that our ears and ultimately our hearts would be receptive to it. Get glory to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a very sketchy, doesn't sound right, a very skeleton outline, a very sparse outline. There, that's the word I want. A brief outline for you this morning. And the idea is that we are progressing in this passage the way I see it. We're going from failure to success, from unbelief to belief. What does that look like? Well, here's, here's the outline the way I see it. Number one, failure rooted in unbelief. That's verses 14 to 23. 
And then success granted because of faith, verses 24 to 29. I'll do my best to explain those as we go. But the main point, what I want you to remember from this morning, is that spiritual success is impossible apart from dependence on God. And how do I know if I'm dependent on God? Because I'll pray. Spiritual success is impossible apart from dependence on God, which is expressed in prayer. Let's go back to verse 14. We're going to work our way through the passage, starting with this first idea that failure, in this case, is rooted in unbelief. Their spiritual failure. Whose spiritual failure? The disciples. Verse 14, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. When it says disciples there, specifically we're talking about the nine who stayed behind. The twelve minus Peter, James, and John who had been with Jesus. And when they get there, there's a great multitude, there's a crowd gathered, and it says the scribes disputing with them. They're arguing, they're questioning. We don't know specifically what they were arguing about, but from the context, many people have suggested that they were probably mocking the disciples. Ultimately, that's at the expense of this child and his father. But they were probably mocking the disciples. Why can't you cast out this demon? You claim that you are going in the authority of your master, your rabbi, your teacher, Jesus, and he said that you could go, and you sure can't get this demon exercised. So ultimately, they were probably making fun of the disciples, and they may have been making fun of their rabbi. See, he's not really all that you claim he is, because you don't have the power, so he doesn't have the power to cast out this demon. We'll talk more in a minute about why this may have been a difficult demon to cast out. Verse 15 says, Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. Now, that's a strange thing to throw in there. The immediately, that's normal for Mark. But why were they so impressed? Why were they amazed? I don't know. There are some who think, well, maybe Jesus was still glowing a little bit. I don't think that's the case. Because Jesus had told his three disciples, don't talk about this until after I have risen from the dead. So I don't think there would be any clues on his person that would cause other people to ask. Some people think that because the crowd gathered around to see the dispute, the argument between the scribes and Jesus' nine disciples, they may have been so distracted and into listening and watching, they may not have noticed that here come Jesus and his three disciples. That's what I think may have happened. They're just, wow, he's here. That's perfect, because we were just talking about him. How fortunate that we can now ask him what's going on in this situation. So it says the people were greatly amazed, or they were overwhelmed with wonder. And Jesus asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? I wouldn't want to be one of the scribes at that moment. Jesus comes up and says, why are you talking to my disciples? What are y'all talking about? And all that was there was the silence that I just let happen right here. It's crickets. Nobody speaks up from the scribes. Nobody speaks up from his disciples. Nobody was brave enough to answer Jesus' question except one man in the crowd. And he has a reason he wants to talk to Jesus. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And when, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now Matthew adds a detail that Mark doesn't have here. And that's 
that the father comes and he kneels down. He is desperate. He is pleading. He is being respectful to Jesus. And he says, I brought you my son. But guess what? He brought his son and Jesus wasn't there. So he tried to have the disciples cast out this demon and help his son. And they couldn't. Luke gives us one other detail. Luke 9.33 says, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. He's my only son. That, by the way, is the same term we have as the only begotten son of God. That's that Greek word. And what's the problem? He has a mute spirit. That doesn't mean he was possessed by a demon who couldn't talk. It means that the demon inside him is preventing him from speaking. And we find out later that he's deaf as well. And the demon is causing this boy's dumbness and deafness. And there are other factors, there are other aspects of his illness, his health issue, his physical problem that suggest epilepsy, that he was having seizures. Now, I'm not by any means saying that all physical problems, all health issues are caused by a demon. That is not what I'm saying this morning. But in this case, it was. How do you know? Because that's what the passage tells us, and the word of God is true. So in this situation, absolutely, there was a physical problem and there was a spiritual problem. Both were going on. Now, why does that matter? Why does Mark think it's important, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to tell us that this was a mute spirit? Well, back in that time, I've shared this with you before, back in that time, the exorcists of that day believed that part of the process was getting the demon to tell you its name so that you could then command and cast it out. And if the demon's not telling you, and the demon is preventing the boy from telling you, how are you going to command that demon to come out? So in their mind, this is an impossible situation. You can't get this demon to come out because you can't get to find out the demon's name. So when it says they could not, in some ways that wouldn't have been surprising to the religious experts of that day, but to the disciples, it was surprising. Why was it surprising to them? Because they had the authority to do it. Well, how do you know that? We looked at this weeks ago, but Mark chapter 3, verse 14 says, Then Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. He had given them the authority to do this. And guess what? They had done it successfully. Chapter 6, he sent them out two by two to the children of the house of Israel. Verse 13 of chapter 6 says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They had been successful in the past. Jesus gave them the authority to do this, and they went out and did it, and it had happened. So why wasn't it happening this time? What was wrong? They had authority, but in this instance, they had no power. This is a problem. They have the authority, but they don't have the power. What is that all about? Warren Risby put it this way. The authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if exercised by faith. But faith must be cultivated. Faith must be grown through spiritual devotion and discipline. Well, those are fancy words. If we're going to show our dependence on God, it is primarily through prayer. We're going to come back to that multiple times in this. He's calling it spiritual discipline and devotion, and it is. But we're not going to have power in our lives if we aren't dependent on God. 
We may have the authority to do this, that, or the other thing, obeying God, but there will not be power evident in our lives if we are not dependent on Jesus. Someone else said, past spiritual victory is no guarantee of future spiritual victory when we operate with faith in ourselves rather than in Christ. So they had all the authority they needed, but they had no power in that moment because they were faithless. And they were faithless because they were prayerless. Do you have spiritual power in your life today? I'm not asking you to answer out loud or raise your hand or anything. But do you have power, spiritually speaking, in your life today? And if in your mind you're answering that question, no, I don't, then I have a second question for you. How is your prayer life? Are you spending time in prayer, asking for God's help, expressing your dependence on him? Verse 19, we have Jesus' response. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Seems like a harsh response. And there are times we read the Gospels and we think, boy, that was kind of a mean thing to say, Jesus. He's not talking just to the man. He is talking to the man. That terminology, that phrase, O faithless generation, that's pretty broad. He's probably talking about all of the people of Israel, all of his nation who are in the process of rejecting him. But more specifically, the multitude in that situation and the scribes and his 12 disciples. And yes, the father as well. He might not have expected much else from this father. But he did expect faith from his disciples. And he's already called them unbelieving on more than one occasion. This father as we'll see in a moment, has some faith. He had faith enough to come and kneel down and ask Jesus to help him and his son. Those must have been comforting words to the father. Bring him to me. Yes, I'll do something. Still doesn't know what. Bring him here. Verse 20. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, this is a surprise, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. It may be that this was an especially mean, nasty demon. Because often in the scriptures, in the gospel accounts, what do we read? That Jesus shows up and the person who's demon-possessed comes and falls down or, or says, I know who you are, or says, please don't send me into the abyss. That's what we often read from a demon in the Gospels. And this one, instead of bowing down, he throws the kid into another convulsion, into another seizure, perhaps. It may be that some demons are stronger than others. Where are you coming from? Well, Ephesians 6, 12 shows us rankings of demons. There Paul wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So that, to me, describes four different ranks of demons. And it could be that some are stronger than others. That may be what's going on here. If nothing else, it is a very defiant demon. 
He's going to do what he can to put on a show before Jesus casts him out. Jesus, though, was not impressed. He was not moved. He was not afraid of this demon. Instead, while the son, unfortunately, is rolling around, because the, the verb is continuous, this is what's happening. He's rolling around. He's foaming at the mouth. Jesus, instead, engages the father. And he says, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. There are a number of people affected by demons as we read, we read the Bible. Not many of them are children. And this began in childhood. I'm not going to speculate why. The scripture doesn't tell us. But from childhood, this child, this father, this family has been enduring hell on earth. Awful trials. Verse 22 tells us about it. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. I'm not here this morning to preach a sermon about demons. I don't want to give that kind of time to them. But I will say that the purpose of Satan and his demons is death and destruction. If demons have a mission statement, it would have to be death and destruction. John 10.10, Jesus speaking, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that word destroy is the same one we have here. Cast him into the fire, cast him in the water. Why? To destroy him. Same word. That is closely related to the name we have for Satan in Revelation 9, where he's called Apollyon, the king, the angel, rather, of the bottomless pit, the leader, yes, and the king over them. So that's Apollyon, the destroyer. John 8, other words of Jesus. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He is a murderer, he is a liar, he is a destroyer. Why does that matter? Well, what is this demon trying to get this kid to do? Kill himself. Y'all hear anything about suicide in our society today? It's all over the place. And I'm not condemning those who have suicidal thoughts. I would think many, if not most of us in the room, have experienced suicidal thoughts at times. Where does that come from? It comes from hell. Please don't make any mistake. It's not anything in you. It is, I'm not saying you're demon-possessed either, but it is a thought from Satan or one of his demons, destroy yourself, destroy yourself kill yourself. Nobody wants you. No, Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose again to give you power for your life. So please understand if you or someone you love is being tempted to harm himself or herself, we need truth because that's a lie. We need the grace of God to share with them the love of God and we need to ignore the lies of Satan, be renewed in our mind, and put on the truth of the Lord. You understand what I'm talking about? That's the situation. The Father has described the demons trying to destroy him. Continuing verse 22. But if you can do anything, and it doesn't sound like his hopes were very high anymore, because the disciples had failed. 
if there's anything you can do, have compassion on us and help us. If you're discouraged this morning, if you're having suicidal thoughts, here's some good news. Jesus has compassion. That's what the man is asking for. Have compassion on us. Help us. Have a heart. If you can do anything, help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now that's how it's worded in my New King James that I'm reading from. Some of you don't have the word believe because the older texts, the older manuscripts don't have the word believe. So it's possible that this should be reworded a different way. And that is with a question mark or even an exclamation point after the word can. Because he says, if you can do anything, please have compassion and help us. And Jesus says, if I can, if I can, what do you mean if I can? Why are you coming to me if I can't help? Again, probably sounds a little harsh to us, reading it in our own culture and our own idea. But what's the point? He's teaching him truth. He's taking his request for help and he's pointing him to the truth. Anything is possible to those who believe. And I don't mean to add to scripture here, but I would say, believe in me, Jesus is saying. That doesn't mean that we can automatically get anything we want if we just have positive thinking. That's not what Jesus is saying here. This isn't about the power of positive thinking. This is about prayer by faith in God according to his will. And he will answer it. I could paraphrase it this way. All things that are part of God's will are possible through prayer. Where are you getting that, Bob? 1 John 5.14. Now this is the confidence. I like that word. This is the confidence that we have in him, in Christ, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If I'm praying for something that is God's will, it's gonna happen because it's all possible. God can do anything according to his holy will. And that's what he's teaching this father who is so desperate to see help for his son. Please, if you can do anything, help us. Have compassion on us. If I can do anything, everything is possible for the one who believes. What is Jesus doing? There are times where Jesus made a big deal out of the faith of the person coming to be healed or the person who brought that person. There are other times there's nothing. But here, Jesus is focusing our attention and that man's attention on faith. And ultimately, he's gonna push his disciples back toward faith. This is our transition. We talked about the failure rooted in unbelief, the spiritual failure of those disciples We'll find out later why. Second, success granted because of faith. And by that, I'm not saying that Jesus had enough faith to do this. I'm not even saying that the man had enough faith, but he had faith. It's not about the amount of faith. It's about the object of our faith. And that's what's important here. So verse 24 continues, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I've prayed that prayer before. I think that's an awesome prayer. Because whatever faith you have, you're acknowledging it's not perfect. I don't have perfect faith. Do you have perfect faith? But I do have faith in God. I have faith in Christ. Would you please help 
my unbelief. What little faith I have, that's what I'm, that's what I'm giving. I'm coming to you. I'm asking for help. Increase my faith. Answer my prayer. Grant my request. Another translation says, help me overcome my unbelief. Because what did he see? He said, I have faith, but I still have doubts. Which is why he said, if you can. Whatever faith he came to Jesus with has probably been shattered by now because the disciples weren't able to help. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion, help. And then he comes down to, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Please grow my faith. It's weak. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. The crowd's forming again. Maybe they had backed off a little bit to give space. I don't know. But they're coming, and rather than make a spectacle, because Jesus wasn't doing it for the show, he took care of it right then. And what did he say? He rebuked the unclean spirit. We've seen him do this before. He has something different to say this time, though. Deaf and dumb spirit. I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. I like that. Not just because Jesus is authoritative and powerful. But how long has this been going on? From childhood. This is a permanent exorcism. I loved what Danny Aiken put in his commentary. Jesus sent the demon packing and posted a no trespassing sign over the child's soul. That demon could not come back. Jesus had forbade that demon from returning. Verse 26, then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead so that many say, said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. This demon was not gonna give up easily and he still knocked the child down, did all the damage he could do, but none of it was permanent, and the demon was gone. But everybody thought, this demon's been casting him into the water, casting him into the fire to destroy him. He destroyed him. He's dead. Well, Jesus knew better. Jesus knew better, and he took him by the hand and lifted him up. And I, that's nice in English. I like it. And he arose. That, that shows Jesus' compassion. That doesn't give us the full force of this. Literally, the text reads, Jesus raised him, and he was resurrected. That doesn't mean he was dead, but that's the same wording because what has Jesus been talking to his disciples about in these chapters? What's the context, the greater context? He's teaching his disciples, I am going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be lifted up. He says it different ways, different times, and I'm going to rise again the third day. He's teaching them about death and resurrection, and he uses that terminology about this child whom he's just cast a demon out of. He lifted him up, raised him up, took him by the hand. That's the picture. God has power over death and destruction. And what does that power do? It gives new life. It resurrects. Jesus delivered the boy because of the father's faith, and now everything is good for that family. But the disciples have a question. We don't know what else happened to the family, but it, it must have been a, a, a celebration. But now, as soon as they get alone, they go into a house the disciples have a question. The leading question on their mind, what they all want to know at that moment, verse 28. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, 
Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Their failure prompted a question. That's a good thing in this situation. Their inability to cast out this demon caused them to ask a question and frankly probably to question themselves. And what does Jesus answer? Ultimately, it's prayer. Someone said, failure to have faith is normally expressed in a failure to pray. Some of you were here a while back, probably a year and a half, two years. We did a series on transforming prayer. And the book is by Daniel Henderson. And he makes this statement that has stuck with me. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. I don't need you. I've got this. In their case, we've cast out demons before. As a matter of fact, some of us are better at it than others. And, and we've done this many. And No. We need prayer. And prayer shows us that we're dependent on God. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. Now, please don't get hung up when he says this kind. Could he be saying that this is a different rank of demon or a harder demon? Maybe. It was certainly a mean demon, a stubborn demon. But probably he's just talking about all demonic spirits. The, the point is that some demons require me to pray beforehand and some don't. No, it's all about the dependence on God, and that is where the power comes from, the power of God through prayer. Just a word about fasting. Um, earlier manuscripts don't have that word at all, but other places talk about fasting, so let me touch on it. Some of us had the idea that fasting is only food, and I'm afraid some of us may have the idea that fasting, this is like extra credit. I'm not just going to pray, I'm, I'm going to fast as well. And that's going to twist God's arm and that, that's going to get me what I want. That's not the right view of that. Fasting doesn't have to be food. It can be. For some of you, you may have health reasons you can't fast from food. But we can fast from media or entertainment. We can fast from various other aspects of our lives, things we like to do, things we enjoy. What's the purpose? To deny ourselves, to deny our flesh, to focus on God, to acknowledge dependence, and to take that time that I would have spent, just in the case of food, if I'm going to prepare a meal and I'm going to eat the meal and I'm going to clean up after the meal, to take that time and I'm going to pray instead and thereby acknowledge my dependence on God. That's the idea of fasting. But that's not the emphasis here, I don't believe. The emphasis is on prayer. Literally, it says, this type is not able to come out by anything except prayer. What it seems to imply is that the disciples had failed in this case because they hadn't prayed in this case. And again, why didn't they pray? Because they thought, oh, I've got this one. No. Without him, we can do nothing. Someone said, trust in Jesus is all that is needed. And this trust in Jesus is what the disciples lacked. As we finish here, I want to ask the question, how much faith do we need? Because some of us may think, I have nothing to offer. I have so little faith, you can't even measure it. That's okay. The parallel passage over in Matthew tells us about this. The quantity of our faith is not important. The object of our faith is what is important. 
Matthew 17, 20 says, so Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Again, not a promise that I can do anything if I have enough faith. No. That God's will will be done, and he will use us as we express our dependence on him in faith through prayer. Most of you are aware. A mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds they had at that time. And it grew into a plant the size of a tree. Rapid growth. We've talked about it before. But just that much. Smaller than you could see if I had one in my fingers up here. That's all the faith that's required. Why? Because the amount of faith is not important. The object of our faith is what is important. What are you trusting in this morning? Those disciples... From what I read in studying this passage this week and meditating on it, I think they were trusting in themselves. I think they were trusting in their past successes. And depending on that, because I've done this before, and God used me. No. You know that disclaimer in the financial world that past success does not predict? Any past success we've had spiritually does not guarantee future success because what is the success dependent on it's not dependent on me and we just said it's not even dependent on the amount of faith i have but am i trusting god am i yielded to the holy spirit spiritual success is impossible apart from dependence on god which is expressed in prayer there may be someone here this morning or somebody who's joined us online and you've never put your faith in Christ. This faith idea is new to you. Well, I have good news. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, by gift, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Here it is again. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I can't save myself. You mean save from what? From sin and the consequence of sin, the penalty of sin, ultimately, if I don't get forgiveness for my sins, I'm spiritually dead and separated from God forever. But by grace, I've been saved through faith. John three sixteen, perhaps one of the best known verses anywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Climbs the highest mountain, goes on a pilgrimage, gives so much to the church, joins this church, gets baptized, no, Whoever believes in him, it's faith. Whoever believes in him should not perish. That, by the way, is the same word as destroyed from earlier. Will not be destroyed, but will have everlasting life. Many of you, I know your testimony. I know you've done that. Are you prayerfully dependent on God? If so, praise the Lord. That may describe some of you. We don't come here every week to say, oh, how did I mess up this week? No, this may be something that God has grown you in. So, bless his name. But what about if not? Does your life lack power? Power to say no to your flesh. Power for victory over sin. Power to stand for truth or to share your faith. If you feel powerless this morning in any of those areas or something else that the Holy Spirit has shown to you, believe in him. Pray to him. 
turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to increase your faith and provide his strength through your weakness. That's what he does. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As we close, I'll ask a couple of questions, give you an opportunity to respond to what we've been talking about for the last little while. First question, do you know Jesus? Not do you know he existed, not do you know he was a good man, a good teacher, worked miracles, cast out demons. Do you know him personally? Is he your savior? Have you believed on him the way I just read from John 3.16? If there's anyone here this morning that you haven't done that, but you're concerned for your soul, would you let me know that? Would you either look up at me or slip your hand up and put it back down? Anyone? Christian? Do you have power in your life? Is there anyone who would say, Bob, I know the Lord has been speaking to me this morning. I don't have power in my life, and I know why. The Holy Spirit has revealed to me again that I don't pray. I don't think about God. I don't consult him for my plans. I just go about my own day, my own business, my own strength. But I'm convicted by that, and I'm turning from that sin of unbelief this morning. If that describes you and you'd like me to pray for you, I'm not going to call your name or draw attention to you, but if you'd like to be remembered in prayer for that, would you do the same? Just make eye contact with me, look back down. Or lift your hand, put it back down. Yes? Anyone else? Father, you can see hands, but more importantly, you can see hearts. And you're a good and loving, kind, heavenly Father. You had compassion on this man who was so burdened for his son. And you have compassion on us. How wonderful it is, Lord, to have the promise from James that When we lack wisdom, we can come to you and you won't turn us away. You won't scold us. You welcome us with open arms when we come to you or come back to you. So Lord, we celebrate and praise you for that today. Lord, for those who have acknowledged a need for prayer because they have a need for power. Lord, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. May we submit to the Holy Spirit. May we confess our need for you on a daily basis to ourselves and others that we would know and experience your power, that you would use us in this world, that your strength would be made perfect in our weakness. Lord, that's what I ask for in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.